0: This is Front Row, and I'm your host, James Whiteside, principal dancer and choreographer with American Ballet Theatre and the author of Center Center. Take a seat in the front row as I discuss the creative process and the business of creativity with the world's brightest stars. Emil Cohen is a New York-based artist and photographer. His photographs have been featured in group and solo exhibitions across the United States. His work has been published in The New York Times, The Boston Globe, People Magazine, Esquire, and Rolling Stone. I have been lucky enough to work with Emil on a number of occasions, and he actually did my headshot for American Ballet Theater. In this interview, he tells me about his side jobs to make money, how he used social media to create a buzzing portrait business, and which dead celebrity he'd like to photograph most. I'm such a fan of Emil's work, and I hope you will be, too, after listening to this episode of Front Row. Emil Cohen, welcome to Front Row. I'm so happy you're here. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Thank you for having me.
0: How's your day going so far?
1: You know, I've had better July days. I had to go to work. I work as a staff photographer for the New York city council in my day job. And, uh, today I w- had to go and photograph council members at the organic waste deposit. Uh, mm-hmm. it's a huge landfill that's made of organic waste that the garbage man collects. So like food and diapers. And I was telling my husband this, I don't wish for even my worst enemies to smell what I smelled today. Oh my gosh, how long were you there? too long and it was like july heat juice trap like wow all i had was my covid mask on to like prevent me from adding to that waste pile yeah
0: you needed one of those <laughs> like hood you know like gas masks
1: i needed a i needed a hazmat suit and then i kept <laughs> thinking how do people these employees do it every day what do you wear every day to this without needing to throw it out
0: and are, is your Clothing, Anyways, very smelly my, now. That was
1: my July day. Oh, I threw it off the second I walked in. Yeah.
0: Oh my God. That like, is, I that's just gross. I'm sorry. But, you know,
1: you know, I've had better July days, but grateful for the work. Yes. Always grateful. Oh my
0: God. What a day job. Just at the dump.
1: What <laughs> just another day at the dump. <laughs>
0: so let's hop into this interview, shall we? Yeah. So I see that you have your MFA from the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston at Tufts University. You know, I lived in Boston for 10 years. Uh, I don't know if you knew that, but I danced for Boston Ballet. I lived there for 10 years. And I'd like to know what you thought of Boston, what your experience was in the city.
1: Um, Great question. Boston was a phenomenal city to go to school in. Um, It's a huge academic city, Philbrook obviously many renowned schools. And so in that sense, the city is filled during the school year with students, mm-hmm. art students, science, science students, whatever, the whole works. Um, and it's a small city in comparison to New York. So it was a great space to focus on education and also explore the city and feel like you're really getting a full experience of it within the time of yeah. school. So I had a great time.
0: Good. What brought you to that school specifically in Boston?
1: Um, So at the time, I had graduated from undergraduate at Drexel University, Philadelphia. Um, I participated in this music industry program there that gave me my bachelor's in audio engineering. I was there for a piano scholarship. Mm. Uh, I minored in music business, and I really thought the path for my career was going to be within the music industry. And I eventually got a job working at a record label Uh, which unfortunately was not the best experience. Uh, It was a great foot in the door, but I didn't have a boss who wanted to Mm. be my mentor. And it created a bit of a hostile environment. Which label was it? It was for Universal Music and one of their Mm -hmm. subsidiaries labels, one of their Mm -hmm. smaller labels. So it was a great foot in the A&R team, which is where I wanted to be. I wanted to discover new artists. I love music so much. Um, but it was within their finance division wah, so wah. this creative yeah this creative person did not have the natural instincts for math yeah. and money so it was a large learning curve and my boss didn't have patience for that so I was relying more and more on a creative outlet while I was at that position and <laughs> photography was always something that I loved I was always the kid at summer camp with a giant jumbo set bag of disposable cameras like 10 of yeah. them for like four weeks my grandfather is an amateur photographer my mom's a high school theater director so i come from a very creative visual my grandmother was a painter uh so i come from a very visual a line of very visual creative artists and yeah as i was miserable in this day job i just kept relying more and more on Photography until I realized this might be something I want to do professionally. So I applied for grad programs. And obviously, without that much mean? experience in photography, I didn't get into many of the schools, but the museum school <laughs> offered their post post-bac laureate program. And I thought, well, a post is a program that schools offer um, after you graduate that is just a year, it's a certificate. Um, and then immerses you in the school like a full-time student, but it's not a degree program. Sometimes it's just to get certain requirements like uh, general eds for, if you want to go to grad school for med school or law school mm. or something, and you need prerequisites, it could be what I did, which was you take these courses that will allow you to build a portfolio that you can apply for grad school. Um, it just gives you a little bit more um, be there for what you need to be there for opportunities. And yeah, it was really great. And because I was already in the system there, I was able to graduate and move into their grad program. And so I stayed for two more years. And
0: so you, you came to New York right after that though, right?
1: Incorrect.
0: Incorrect. Tell me more.
1: I moved. So my boyfriend, my partner at the time, and I, well, he worked for, huge company, international, a huge international company. And I said, why don't we move to London? He asked me, what do we want to do after graduation? You're almost done. I said, you work for one of the biggest companies in the world. Why don't we take advantage of that while we have the time? Mm -hmm. So he applied for a position in London and he got accepted. And so we knew early in the year that we would be moving. And so that summer after I graduated, we moved to Provincetown full-time for the summer. And then in October, we moved to London. And that's where I was for about 15 months. And then, unfortunately, we broke up, and I realized the best decision for me was to move back to New York, where I'd been for the last seven years.
0: Okay, so tell me about your (laughs) life in London. Were you working
1: there? Um, I was working like any young post-grad, uh, does in a restaurant (laughs) in a pub. Uh, and it was a great experience. Um, it was one of the first life lessons I learned after graduation, which was every time you move, you have to build your name up again. And so, which Mm. is fine. Um, I had worked in the service industry in the past. And so I knew it was just going to be the first thing I do as soon as we moved there. To start making money and create a routine so that I could begin networking and yeah. try to get a little photo name for myself. And I worked at a great gastropub. The thing with the service industry in London before Brexit was that everybody from all over the world works in the service industry there. So, yeah, my restaurant was filled with Americans, Canadians, Hungarians, Australians, you know, uh, people from Scotland, from all over Europe and uh, the world. And so it was a really great experience oh, that um, i still have friends to this day from yeah um yeah. so i i did that and then it takes <laughs> about a year to kind of establish yourself in a new city yeah. which of course was terrible timing to break up with someone because as soon as i was getting calls for photo work i was leaving the country once again yeah
0: but when you got back to new york then what was your first professional job as a photographer
1: the good thing about moving back to New York was that I had already this strong group of friends and family there. So I was able to Mm. hit the ground running in terms of both a hustle and both work opportunities. I had friends reach out for freelance work. I I had done a lot of event photography um, Uh in London for some gay parties that were out there um, just to get that foot in. I was doing horse meat disco at the Eagle. I was doing the meat party which is associated with the magazine, this great gay yeah, British magazine. We love we love them there. Yeah. And so I, uh, I had that kind of portfolio to show and I was getting more and more of a bit work through there while of course working as a host in Hell's Kitchen at a restaurant. Um just which one? Meet. It was literally called Hell's Kitchen shout out to Oh uh, yes, I remember
0: their- that. It's not there anymore, is it?
1: I think they're still there, but Vinyl, who shared a kitchen with them, um, Ah, has moved on to better days. Still same owners, but I don't know what it is right now. I hope it's good. It used to be like this. (laughs) They re-rented it as a lodge at some point pre-COVID, and then I think they realized, keep it gay, keep it gay, keep it gay.
0: Keep it gay. That's what we're here for, you know?
1: Yeah, especially in Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. (laughs) Know your audience, baby. (laughs) So... (laughs) I think they're good there. And so, yeah, I did that. Uh, and that eventually I was really hungry to just like post breakup back in New York city. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to fuck around. So <laughs> I got the job at the restaurant to make steady cash. I was living at home. Uh-huh. It wasn't, it wasn't the highest point of my life, but I did the best that I could with it. I had a lot of friends who offered a lot of couches during that time.
0: Um, which neighborhood was home. Home is long Island. Long Island. Which part of Long Island?
1: Uh, It's New Hyde Park, Roslyn area. I I moved there when I was 16. finished out of high school there before I went to college. Um, So I moved back home just to save money. Uh, And so through the hustle of freelancing and applying for a million jobs, I got my first non-freelance job, which was teaching photography at the city at the Museum of the city of New York MCNY mm. um, which is on museum row at the top of Fifth Avenue and the park and it was great I taught photo to these young after like young kids after school program and that led into the next job which was a photo editor at the New York Times which I did as a permanent freelancer so I was kind of on retainer with them wow. um, and when you're in that role you're you know, somebody could be leaving for a few weeks. So you're covering that desk mm-hmm. or it's fashion week and we need you for the next six weeks full time. Yeah, I didn't get benefits, but I got a great hourly wage. Um, and so you just say, yes, right. You're, you're an employee there. And yeah. maybe the lowest and lowest of uh, <laughs> of the totem pole, but it was so frequent enough. That I didn't need to look for other work. So I did that for about a year until that dried up. And then, um, In between the gigs, between that and the city council, I thought, well, social media seems to be a thing that I need to focus on because I'm sorely (laughs) lacking in that department and I don't want to spend money. So how can I like figure this out? And I started taking my backdrops out, my lighting equipment, and I started reaching out to friends to take their portraits, something I always wanted to do. Figured this was a good time to do it. it. Cost me $0. Everybody loves content. I need content. You need content. Let's scratch each other's backs. And so that's how that portrait series began. And then a few months later, I got a job at the council and I've been there for the last four and a half years.
0: Wow. So in, you say it costs nothing, but do you own all of your cameras?
1: Yeah. Um, A great opportunity I had at grad school was to be the teacher's assistant for advanced lighting techniques in photography. So, I really got to teach and learn um, at the same time mm. how to do a lot with a little. You know, I think a lot of people going into, say, photography today see it as this big equipment based, spend lots of money to take a good photo kind of industry or just art practice. And the truth is, you don't need a lot. Most people didn't have strobe lights <laughs> when they were creating yeah. art for hundreds yeah. of years. Uh, and so with what you can do a lot with just a clamp light that you can get at a home depot, you can use a flash on the camera or a wireless device on your camera and get that flash, you know, mobile, you can do so much. Um, and I think people don't realize that, that if you see a photo that inspires you and you want to take something like that, figure out the lighting sources first, how many lights are in the Mm. picture? You'll be surprised how little there are. You might be surprised by how many there are too. Uh, You know, sometimes photos require a shit ton of lights and a lot of skill. But for me, I I I only need one to for this project. You know, for the portraits, it just requires one good light.
0: Are you represented by an
1: agency? I'm not. So if you're hearing this and you're seeing this, please call me. (laughs) (laughs) The number is listed below. So you
0: are a freelance photographer. Exactly what does that mean?
1: Freelance with an asterisk, I should say. James. Uh, Because this job (laughs) at the city council is a full-time job. And so I am employed by them. But all the freelance Mm. work that you see me do is all... All the work opportunities you see outside of the city council is all just freelance word of mouth, reaching out to me, um, networking, it's nothing to do with representation. So I can ask, mm. answer your question. Um, if you want to ask it again, cause I forgot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wait, I have another question about, okay. um, being freelance. Do you feel like your opportunities that come to you outside of the city council work are a direct result of your social media presence? Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com.
1: I would say it's a combination of working really hard at building an audience via social media, as well as being a consummate networker. I think the only way to succeed as a freelancer is through constant hustling. Um, That doesn't mean just creating work. It means networking maybe even more so than the amount of work that you are creating. Yeah. Because if I call this the center stage theory, Um, as you know, Mr. Ballet (laughs) dancer, uh, the movie, I'm sure you know the movie well, but remember the part in the movie when all the incoming students at the beginning, they all start their first day at at the Academy and the director, he asks, I was gonna say sandy cohen he was sandy cohen in the oc right yes uh yes peter, that's yes. the oc yes
0: peter gallagher what's his name in the in center stage um i don't remember
1: anyway sandy cohen asks the students raise your hand if you're the best in your class and i'm 100 percent paraphrasing but he says raise your hand if you're the best in your class and everyone timidly starts raising their hand he goes everybody raise your hand and look around you you're amongst you're equals, right? You're amongst the best of the best. So, how are you going to stand out from this group? And I always huh. think about that, or I, I try and share that with people that come in here that work in the arts, because at some point, your work is going to be equal to the person next to you, right? Equal in hmm. the sense that you share a skill set, you share a level of professionalism. And so, the way to stand out isn't by trying to just create a better photo than the person next to you. It's to prove that you're a great person to work with because at the end of the Mm. day, especially in the creative arts, it's all subjective, right? Like you put 10 of us in a room and we take your photo, you're going to get 10 very different portraits of James Whiteside. And Mm. so how are you going to make the person who's hiring you say, I want Emil, not just because he takes great photos, but because I know he's a great person to work with. He's professional. He shows up early. He's great dynamic. He's friendly. And so I think...
0: That's a great thing to remember just for any line of work ever. It's like you never know who someday may end up being your peer, your boss, whatever. It always pays to be a nice person. It's very simple.
1: And also know who is working alongside you in the field because there's no Mm. need to be vindictive or competitive with somebody especially in the visual arts I don't know what it's like as a dancer when it comes to technique and and form but you know I will never take the same picture as the photographer next to me so like why should we be at odds with each other let's just Mm -hmm. encourage each other to keep going and whoever gets the job gets the job and it will solely be because hopefully because they we both work well you know with you but maybe they wanted to go with your eye for this opportunity.
0: Yeah. And I, I feel like your relationship to the queer community has really bolstered your place as one of the most ubiquitous and prolific portrait photographers. And I, I'm curious as to why photograph, uh, photographing queer people is so important to you.
1: Um, well, first off, thank you for saying maybe the nicest thing anybody has ever said to me. So <laughs> thank God it's a podcast because I am beat red. <laughs> i i I learned a lot in grad school that i still carry with me 12 years later um i started in 2011 so that's when i kind of start my time as a photographer and Mm. i remember when i went into that program i thought being a photographer meant like a photojournalist national geographic new york times photographing the starving children on the streets You know, like it had to be something like as dramatic as that. That's what that was the apex, you know? And so the program at the museum school is fine art based. So it was really about teaching you about the concept and conceptual thinking when it comes to approaching your art. And so my teacher looked at me struggling and she said, look, photograph what interests you. That is what's going to make your art great and your own. You know, certain topics. a never-ending well of opportunity like the theme of family you know everyone can photograph their family and it never gets oversaturated because everyone's family is so different so don't worry about what it is you're interested in just go out and figure that out and so that night my my boyfriend said hey uh do you want to go to that drag show i was telling you about it's amazing I'd never been to a drag show. I had no idea what to expect. He says, everyone, mm-hmm. this is like the show that we have to go to. This is the show in Boston. I said, okay, let's go. And sure enough, it was the first Monday of every month at Jacques Cabaret. I don't know if you ever went, but it was Oh, I did. It was Katya's from Drag Race, her her show called Perestroika, which ran for uh-huh. many years. And No idea what to expect. You know, I was kind of expecting, like, the birdcage, you know, or or Fu kind of drag. And here comes this incredibly brilliant drag queen in a cat suit outfit pulling a tub of kitty litter onto the stage while singing memories in Russian from cats while pretending to take a shit in this kitty litter tub. And I was like, oh, this is it this is what I need to be photographing. So that was kind of like the big aha moment for me that it's the queer community that I want to explore. And you know, like anything when you're done being interested in something, move on. Right. Uh, And it's been over a decade and I'm still not over it because there's so many avenues and paths you can take that will unlock something totally new and interesting, at least for me, that I want to document.
0: That's amazing. I I believe that when you follow your creative path, your instinct, your genuine interests, opportunities bloom. And I feel like your business has grown as a result of you following that instinct. I cannot believe you don't have an agent, frankly. That's so surprising to me. You're doing like major campaigns for for brands for the and passions. you don't have an agent.
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, which, you know, I totally agree with the way you're thinking uh, in that line of thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I think for me, by pursuing just what interests me, I have, and like that crossroads of networking, like we were talking about. -hmm. You just kind of find a world where you're working with the people that are kind of also in the bubble that you want to focus your artistic interests on. And I learned, you know, I continue to learn that sometimes trying to get into the A list group is just unproductive because that A list group is already in their own bubble. I think Mm -hmm. the main the main focus, any artist trying to hustle up the ladder is to find the people who are hustling with you in every Mm -hmm. field, because you know, I would never have gotten that pride gig um, that I shot this year without the years of work and the years of reaching out and the years of just pursuing people who are also working and trying to climb up their own industry's ladder. And so that at some point down the road, everything is a marathon, not a sprint. You find yeah. that that person that you met seven years ago is now at that higher level that's now been higher for pride campaigns and you've been friends for all these years. And so yeah. now those doors are going to start opening for you rather than trying to get to the very top, which you know some people can achieve and some people can get there faster. But you're going to be jumping and grasping for those straws a lot a lot longer than you would if you remember that there are people at your level.
0: Yeah. And are you referencing the Todd Snyder campaign? I
1: am. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, so which...
0: Emil and I worked together, for, for you listeners out there, we worked together on the Todd Snyder um, collaboration with Xavier Schipani, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, perhaps. And the images appeared on an enormous building billboard in Times Square for all of June. And the images were stunning, and I felt very chic in the photos, I must admit.
1: (laughs) I was so grateful for that opportunity. Not only was it the biggest opportunity that I have had as a photographer, but the work experience with Todd Snyder and everybody that we got to shoot was just the most wonderful, gracious, friendly work environment that I have ever worked in. Everybody was just such good spirits we had good music playing the energy was relaxed everyone looked good everyone came like to work and it was just a joy
0: that company is special they've been special for for a long time i've had the opportunity to work with them a couple times and every time it's more joyful than the last i really i'm a todd snyder stan
1: (laughs) is there like a like a snyder fan like a
0: do they have a name like little monsters or something? Right.
1: Yeah, like a like a sn- Todd Snoozy... I don't know. I'll, I'll wake up in the middle of the night tonight, like, like, like I got it.
0: <laughs> I have a hypothetical for you. Actually, are you are you ready? Always. If you had the opportunity to photograph one dead person, so if you could bring one dead person back to life to shoot their portrait. Who would it be?
1: Okay, well, there are obviously so many people, but the first person that came to my mind was Sylvester. Mm. Uh, Sylvester just, I feel like, was this incredible presence, incredible energy, an artist in its truest form.
0: Tell my listeners who Sylvester is, please.
1: Sylvester uh, was an a queer, openly Queer artist in the 70s and 80s and early 90s before they succumbed to uh, the AIDS virus and HIV complications due to the AIDS virus. And they had some of the best music of all time. You make me feel mighty real. I mean, just as their number one, their number one smash, which still (laughs) hits today. And that's just the surface level. <laughs> Viewers, listeners, callers, go deep into the Sylvester discography. There's only about four or five albums. I mean, Stars is a track that just needs to be played at full volume. I will give you a playlist at the end of this of just music. I highly encourage I would it. love that.
0: Yes, please. I need done. a deep cut Sylvester playlist, uh, please.
1: Done. I mean, I'll just send so, it's like all ready to go already. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> you've already got it. Um, all right, I have one final question for you. I'd like to know what is beyond your current freelance lifestyle, beyond city council, what do you believe your bill your business will evolve into as a photographer?
1: I hope I mean we talked about a career being a marathon and not a sprint. And I it's something I have to remind myself every day because I feel very ready for that next chapter of whatever the career brings. Um hopefully it's more incredible opportunities like the Todd Snyder campaign was, but mm-hmm. I would like for my portraits to have a legacy far beyond my time on this earth, like the artists that inspire me today you know, people like Peter Hujar and Irving Penn album, Baltrop, who was this incredible black queer photographer who was photographing the scene at the piers in the eighties and wow. late seventies and who did not get the credit he deserved while he was alive because he was black, because he was gay, because he was photographing, you know, the gay community in New York, but whose work like is so prolific to me. Uh, if you look at wow. my photo series, the landscapes, it's like, I'm trying to have a conversation with his work. So I always look at these artists that continue to inspire me and hope that the work that I leave here can inspire the next generation. um, Even if I'm not there to see it.
0: Absolutely. That is a beautiful place uh, to put a pin in this. And I just want to make sure everyone can follow your work. Can you share your handle?
1: Yeah, it's real easy. It's my name. It's E-M-I-L-C-O-H-E-N, Emil Cohen, no spaces, one word.
0: Incredible. Emil, thank you so much. I just love your work so much. It is so beautiful, and it means a lot to me as a gay person to see all of these gorgeous people represented in your work.
1: Well, let me not only say thank you, but also show my gratitude because you were one of the first person people willing to take your To come to Queens, to sit in my tiny little studio apartment, have their photo taken. And that was already like five years ago now. And we're continuing this beautiful relationship, this friendship that I hope Mm. will continue for years on end. Nothing brings me more joy than having like a body of work of one person over a time span. And I think that's going to be you.
0: Yep, I'm going to be a saggy old man, and you're going to still be taking my picture. Kicking
1: that leg up.
0: (laughs) All right, thank you so much, Emil.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Don't forget to subscribe and review this podcast. And if you like it, share it with your friends or on social media. You can follow me on all social platforms by searching James Whiteside. My book, Center Center, a funny, sexy, sad, almost memoir, is available everywhere in all formats. Front Row uses music from the song A-flat by Black Violin. Check out the show notes on jamesbwhiteside.com for exclusive video and audio from this podcast.